0: I'm Michelle Matthews and I'm Senior Vice President with purpose Built Communities and today it's my pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to my colleague and friend Logan Herring. He is the CEO of Reach Riverside in Wilmington, Delaware and is what we call a community quarterback for a neighborhood in Wilmington that is rich and diverse with history and is fighting back on some of the challenges of lack of investment and some of our systemic and public policies. So I'm really excited to talk with Logan today to give an opportunity for him to share a little bit about his community. So to get us started, why don't you tell us the the facts about where you work and what your neighborhood is and the city that you're in and you just kind of provide a little bit of an overview of reach riverside
1: Uh, thank you michelle logan herring i work in the riverside neighborhood of wilmington delaware um wilmington delaware is a small city um, not far from philadelphia about 20-25 minutes Uh, our population is approximately seventy thousand people the city is 57% African-American, I think 25% somewhere about um, white, and then 12% Latino. So the majority of the city, or a good majority of it, is uh, Black and brown communities. Riverside is an all-Black neighborhood we lead the city of Wilmington in a not good statistic with 70% of our children living in poverty. You know, when we look at what this pandemic has done to our neighborhood, and I'm sure we'll get into that in a second, our community was not set up for success during this pandemic. So, you know, Reach Riverside as our community quarterback in Wilmington, Delaware, in the Riverside neighborhood, we were able to quickly mobilize and we have additional capacity that I think is different from most purposeful community network affiliates because we have two sister organizations that work in alignment and unison with us and uh, reach riverside as a community quarterback also serves as like the management organization for those two other organizations um, which is kingswick community center historic traditional community center that's been in the riverside neighborhood for 74 years and then a new community center that we just built when i say built we put three million dollars into uh, a former uh, charter school, and that is called the Warehouse, and it's focused on teens in the city of Wilmington. So all together, we have about three—we have three organizations and about 100 employees. And us having that totality and resources allows us to do a lot more than um, I believe a a typical, you know, community quarterback might have as it as it begins on this path. And Reach Riverside was just founded uh, less than three years ago, so we've really built capacity in a major way pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, so before we get uh, a chance to dive down a little bit deeper and, you know, more specifics that you could share about what you have been doing, you know, I have to check in with you personally, just to understand how, you know, I continue to say in this time, and we all know what that means, right? The COVID and the protests and the emphasis that we're seeing to try to address some of the racial inequities um that our history was founded on. And as an African American man or a black man, uh someone who's doing this work, but I also know you have a young son, LJ, how is, you know, so how are you taking this all in? And I also would be really interested, how are you helping him process it? I know he's young and he can't necessarily understand everything that's going on, but I know he's seen the protests. He's kind of been out. Talk to us a little bit about how that's impacting you and your family.
1: (laughs) It's interesting, that that question, and I get that quite often. With LJ, um, he's three years old, by the way, and when it was, I guess, for a month or so ago, when we had um, protesting throughout the entire country, um, we had it right here in Wilmington as well. And as most of those protests, they started peacefully. You know, there were a few individuals, and it only really takes one. For things to turn bad and I live in downtown Wilmington. So I literally watched you know it unfold and the looting happening a block away from my window. I watched it outside my bedroom window. And my son was asleep in his bedroom. And as I watched I felt helpless, you know, as an African American man, as a perceived you know community leader, um, because I couldn't go out and do anything, you know, physically. So I tried to mobilize the best I could on the phone and computer and started pulling together efforts. And, you know, before we knew it, you know, by the next morning, we had like thousands of people that were ready to come downtown and clean up after the looting. Uh, And then the city had responded overnight. So by the time everyone was about to come downtown, all of the glass and I would say the majority of things had been cleaned up. So what I did from there was um, I said, I need to try to explain this to my son because you know he's sleeping peacefully, he doesn't know what the world has in store for him as a as a black boy growing up in America, but I felt it my duty to to show him what's going on and try to explain it the best I could to a to a three year old so you know we went for a walk and again, I'm a block away from the main strip um which is called Market Street, and we walk right on a Market Street and we started walking down and he sees like glass, he sees boarded up windows um he sees police tape you know caution tape all around. And I'm trying to explain uh, to him, you know, what had happened, and he said, "Did mean, you know, did mean people do this?" And I said, "Well, L J, there's mean people, there's nice people, there's people that are upset um, because, you know, they have haven't been felt, they haven't been treated right, um, their lives and and their and their dads and their grandfathers and their moms and grandparents." And he was like, "Oh, okay." And he said, "And he said, well, there's good people and there's bad people and there's good people, Daddy." And I said, "Yes." And he said, We're good people. And I said, We are good people. Let's stay that way. So, after I'm explaining this to him, um and this is how Delaware works Joe Biden's walking down the street <laughs> with our, our Congresswoman, Lisa Bunt Rochester. And I know both of them fairly well because it's Delaware um, and everyone knows everybody. And um, he comes across the street, Joe Biden, and he comes across the yellow caution tape. And he tries to embrace LJ because he's heard of him and he's heard about the work that we're doing. And Joe Biden donated one hundred sixty thousand dollars to Kingswood Community Center um, a couple of years ago. And so happened that, um, you know, Joe Biden's media take a picture of the shot. And it's a shot that's been retweeted all around the world. It's on Joe Biden's campaign ad now. So now I'm trying to keep my three year old from having a big head because he's a, he's a celebrity. Uh, so, um, and when the commercial comes on, he 's like, This is it, Daddy, this is us so it's It's fun, but um you know times like this where it's really heavy it's these moments where you also see like the light side and the kids and and being around him more now than ever because he, he's not going to school, he's not going to summer camp you know i I appreciate these moments even more in the fact that I get to pour into him and try to explain as a three year old and continue to do that throughout his life, and I often joke that. You know, LJ is my succession plan. Um, but at the end of the day, I would feel like I didn't achieve anything if he actually has to do this work, at least to the degree that I'm doing it in about 20 years. So um, I know that was a long winded answer, but um, I think that's the best way I could respond to, to that question.
0: No, I appreciate that. I mean, this is what makes this stuff real, right? You have such a passion for kids in the community, and you know, you're navigating that. In addition to being a good role model and a good dad. So I appreciate that. Talk to us a little bit about you, you mentioned that you are a relatively new community quarterback doing amazing things. And you know, what is it that would be really helpful for us to hear about what has happened in Riverside since you've been involved in terms of some of your accomplishments and some of the changes that you're beginning to see?
1: Yes, I can't begin to talk about Riverside without adding some context to start with. You know, everyone knows what Riverside is now, which is the public housing community. It's less than 300 units, about 1,200 individuals. The entire census tract is, you know, a little over 3,000 people. But when people say Riverside, they're really talking about the public housing that sits adjacent to Kingswood Community Center. Historically speaking, Riverside... Public housing was built in the nineteen fifties post-World War II. Like many public housing units around the country were built post you know war. (laughs) Ironically enough, Riverside was an all-white neighborhood because it was public housing built for white veterans coming back from war. We have another neighborhood called Southbridge that was built for black veterans coming back from war. And during the time of white flight, where whites had the ability to purchase homes in the suburbs and you know, blacks were then redlined to certain neighborhoods, whites left the community, blacks came in. And at that point, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, it was a strong, tight knit, family oriented community, although the public housing, um, you have a lot of success stories that come out, particularly during that era. Um, but then the crack epidemic hit the era, you know, that era hit the Riverside neighborhood. You know, during that time throughout this country, one in four African-American males either locked up or in prison. So the, the fabric of the families in the neighborhood being as tight knit as it was, was really torn apart. And what we see, statistically speaking, current, present-day Riverside, 87% of the homes are led by single women. 87%, which is the exact opposite of the rest of the state, which is 13%. So when you look at, you know, that being a key indicator of future success for your family, um, you know, teenage pregnancy rates, high school dropouts, access to human and economic resources, you know, we look at that and we say, well, You know, that's a leading reason, but it all goes back to those racist policies and practices, the red line, the criminal justice system, um, the GI Bill, you know, and those are just three (laughs) that we can name right now. Uh, So, you know, Riverside still has a lot of pride, but a lot of that was lost during that crack, you know, that crack era. And if we had only treated the crack era like we treat the opioid epidemic, things might be completely different and we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. But we are where we are now. Um, We're we're doing all that we can to support the community, but our tagline is with the community, for the community. So we don't do anything without the community being right there beside us, empowering them to help um, change the the situation that's going on now and leaning on them for the solutions. And then us trying to bring in the resources to make um, those solutions come to life.
0: Yeah, so what are you at this point most proud of?
1: Wow, that's a loaded question. A hard question. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is extremely hard. Um, what I'm most proud of is the relationships and the trust that we've rebuilt in the community. In 2015, Kingswood Community Center was about to close its doors. The previous leadership had let it down a dark path, uh, made some not so wise decisions, to say the least. Um, and when I came in, in the beginning of 2016, only as an interim executive director, just to see how how I do over the first six months. In three months, the board was like, all right, you got to stay. And in two years, we went from a 12-week rolling cash flow just to see if we could you know, pay the bills to um, really sustaining the organization. Um, and during this pandemic, I don't even know if this should be public dollars or not, but we are a nonprofit. We have like a million dollars in the bank. Right now at Kingswood, which is just like unheard of, uh, and we have really sustained organization, but the, the most important thing is that we've revitalized the spirit of Kingswood and the spirit of the community through the work that we're doing, and just simply doing what we say we're going to do, not overpromising, but over-delivering. And it's been a, it's been a marathon, and it will continue to be that, um, but we've kept a, a steady pace. And, um, you know, we, we make good on on our promises and we do that with the community in mind and the community, you know, kind of guiding us through this um, as we make decisions based upon their needs and desires.
0: Yeah, I think that that's something that's so important and we continue to um, talk about as a network and and with partners is and, and you sort of summarize it as you set up what the history of the neighborhood is these neighborhoods that we work in were thriving in many cases. And it's just the uh, lack of investment or some of the practices that has um, been challenging them. So sort of given the relationships that you have in the community and the things that you have planned, how is the pandemic really hitting your neighborhood in terms of how it's affected families? But also tell us a little bit about how it is affecting how you and your partners and your staff engage.
1: Riverside neighborhood is, you know, similar to all of the other uh, black and brown communities that have been hit the hardest through this pandemic and these communities, and and I'm going to be intentional when I say this, these communities that have been made vulnerable, um, we're not going to say vulnerable communities uh, because when you say made vulnerable, it takes the, the responsibility off The residents in terms of why they are in the conditions, understanding, you know, the previous comments that I made about how the community was set up this way. You know, this community was set up to fail. This community is constantly facing oppression and barriers. So, you know, when this pandemic hit, um, we knew that, you know, the community being vulnerable would require us to step in in a more deeper way than we have in the past. And we really, you know, refocused our efforts and concentrated our efforts on like immediate relief. And, you know, I had this concept um, to provide cash assistance to every single household in the public housing community. And at first, you know, to be honest, some people resisted it because it's like, all right, you're giving people money. What are they going to do with it? We need to tell them. I was like, no, we're not telling them what they're going to do with it. But the federal government can give everyone a $1,200 check. And there's no restrictions to that. Who are we to say, all right, we're going to give you $250 a month, and there's going to be restrictions around. Um, people are going to do what they need to do for their families. And we saw that. So through the relief efforts, we had, you know, all of the households commit, um, participate in a survey, which would identify what they intended to spend the money on, which were majority, I think 91% in utility bills, you know, 75% food. Uh, so, you know, we understood that there were immediate needs that, that needed to be addressed. And then there were other things that we knew needed to be addressed, like you know technology, the digital divide. And I think that's one thing that, you know, has been missed in a lot of this is that since all the schools are out of school, the child care centers are out of child care. So, you know, at Kingswood, we're doing everything virtually now. The warehouse, we're doing everything virtually with our teams. The schools are doing everything virtually. We have a, a family in our neighborhood We're a single mother who has eight children and she was laid off. So she needs a device so she can continue to look for work. The kids need a device. Each of them need a device to continue their learning. And what often happens in, you know, low-income neighborhoods is you already see a summer slide in terms of, you know, the gap that is wide in every summer because those that have are continual learning in some format and they gain like a month or two months during the summer. And the low-income communities, particularly those black and brown, lose like three months. So you add that on every year, um, our kids are left behind. Well, you add a pandemic on top of that, which is another four or five months on top of the summer, and, you know, our kids are immediately behind a half a year to a year already. Um, And in this case, you know, you have eight children trying to fight over one device. So we knew that was something we had to address. So, you know, I can talk about our relief efforts if you want, um, you know, as we go on, uh, but we've really concentrated our efforts to make sure that, you know, everyone has this vision of what Riverside is going to be 5, 10, 15 years now, but it does us no good if we can't address the immediate needs which are in the next 5, 10, 15 months.
0: You know, given what your efforts have been, what's been the response um, from the community? You've talked about you've built trust. You had those relationships. You know, what ha- what's been the
1: response? The response has been overwhelming. I'm actually getting chills when you answer, ask me that question. At first, you know, so we put yard signs in the yards, we sent out postcards, um, we try to spread it word of mouth to get people to register for the fund. We have close to 300 households that we plan to support through this relief fund. And it took, I would say in two to three weeks, we only had maybe like 75 homes sign up because it seemed too good to be true. Uh, We were also advertising, you know, we're doing screening and testing at Kingswood Community Center. So I think the first distribution we had, like, uh, maybe 100 households come. And by the end of the day, we had, like, another 100 households sign up. And they're like, these guys are really doing that. And to my earlier point, like, the families being responsible about taking care of those most pressing needs and not buying lottery tickets or alcohol or drugs, like, you know, some of the people that I've talked to thought they would do. Uh, and, you know, hearing them say I'm getting on the phone right now and I'm calling the the light company. I need to pay my bill. It's not $250, but they're going to get the whole thing because I don't want them calling me anymore. Or, you know, another mother saying, um, I was just laid off. My rent is $250. I didn't know I was going to pay it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you guys for doing this. Um, And then, you know, last month we started handing out the Chromebooks. And I think we were so liberal in doing it and so nonchalant, they didn't think it was serious. So we were like, um, do you have... Uh, a laptop or you know a tablet, and your I'm like no, like how many children do you have? You know like three. She's like all right, here's two Chromebooks, and she's like, are you serious? And we're like yeah, enjoy. And she's like oh my god, I can't believe it, and then they start crying. Knowing what their needs are through the survey, developing these relationships as we talk to them, as we distribute the cash, as we distribute PPE, um, as we distribute food, um, we have relationships with our community like we never had before. So, you know, this pandemic, to us, it's been a gift and a curse. Um, obviously, you know, our community is facing the most toughest times that we've ever seen in this country. But the interesting thing is, like, they're used to tough times. They know how to navigate, you know, social services in the system. Um, so that's not necessarily scary. But it's the things that, you know, we take for granted, like the technology, food, household supplies, um, things that, you know, we might take for granted that are really hitting our families and us being able to step into the gap during this time, I mean, there's no better feeling. We've already distributed over $105,000 of direct cash with no restrictions around it. And we plan to continue doing that, you know, depending on how our fundraising goes. So we're excited to be able to do this. Uh, But at the end of the day, I wish we didn't have to.
0: Sort of brings tears to my eyes with some of the joy that you know that you're being able to to bring into people's life, and what struck me as you were sharing that is something that we are having lots of conversation about relative to equity, and you know I always think about systems, and when we are helping people sort of get a leg up, the thought a lot of times is that we have to design a program for the small percent that's going to abuse the program because we wanna make sure that that doesn't happen. We have sort of have this myth that there's lots of abuses you know, in many systems. And what I love about what you did is you did look at it through the lens of equity and dignity and people's humanity that um, let's not design something because we think people are going to take advantage of the support that we're providing you had trust in your neighborhood you were already there and through that lens of equity you're saying what's the right thing to do for the population we're serving and what's the right system to bring to bear in the way that we're going to do that work i think really is a is a testament to how you are you know sort of looking at your role as a community quarterback and yes it's philanthropy but how do we help people continue to maintain their dignity? through the process. So that that's such a great story. And it seems like, you know, I know you um, and you're part of the equity ambassador program that you are using that lens in all of the work that you're doing. So I don't know if you have a, a thought or a comment um, before I begin to transition and ask you a couple more things about the effort. You know, I have a thought or comment
1: on that. And I just I, I just go back to like the, the federal government, but I have a couple thoughts. I'll try to be brief. So I was having a conversation with the CEO of, you know, um, well, market president of a bank like a year ago with some other nonprofit leaders. And they gave me the usual line they give. Well, you know, we only have so so many resources, so we can't, you know, give money to everybody. And I was like, you know, that doesn't fit well. That doesn't fit well with me. I said, it's political will. I said, when you look at, you know, uh, corporate bailouts, when you look at the opioid epidemic, you know, we... We take care of things that we want to take care of, especially when it affects white communities. And I said, but when it affects black and browns and, and people that have been marginalized for decades and hundreds of years, it's not that big of a deal. So when the pandemic hit and middle America is starting to feel it, all right, well, let's start printing some money. There's a stimulus package. You know, let's PPP. And, you know, the government is just throwing money in without the necessary processes and guidelines in place to make sure the appropriate people or the people that should be getting it are getting it. So, when someone said, you know, well, how are they going to spend it? I said, how dare you? Like, we call it, you know, some people call it trust philanthropy. I call it justice. This community has been disinvested in for so long. We are literally a mile away from downtown where a billion dollars has been poured into downtown Wilmington in like the last 10 years, if not more. And we're worried about $250 per household. Like, no, no. It, and when I see where everybody was mining up during the pandemic, the liquor stores, They got their stimulus check and they went to the liquor store. I don't know if they spent that $1,200 on the liquor store, but some money was spent there. So, um, no, I just, there was no way I was going to put restrictions around it. And if they want to tell us what they intend to spend it on, then that's another thing. And we were able to collect that data. And for the most part, everyone um, is, you know, decided or was intended to spend it responsibly. And yeah, it is, it is dignity and they deserve that.
0: I know that you've had a history in the, you know, sort of nonprofit space and I'd be really interested in your perspective of being uniquely positioned, whether it's to do the long-term work or the short relief work as a place-based organization. How how do you sort of language that for people in terms of what the real, the value add of having such a place-based focus as you are uh, doing your work,
1: yeah, and and you know, there's different terminology. place, space. I I really I like purpose built definition of it. Is it like a defined neighborhood, um, which is why when we did the relief, I'm like, no, we want to focus on that community that we're going to be working with for years and decades to come. Uh, and we want to wrap our arms around them and everything that we do, we want to focus there. Not to say that others can't take um, advantage and not in a bad way of our services and our resources, but we really want to concentrate those efforts. Because when you look at it from like outcomes and metrics, and then when you just look at it like holistically as like a person, you want to take it back to the good old days where we like raised our families as a village. And we think we consider ourselves like a part of the village. You know, we're a neighbor. We call our residents our neighbors. Um, they have things to offer us, just like we have things to offer them. We are, we are in a business of service, but this is a relationship, and it's a two-way street. So, you know, the same dignity that we treat them with is the same dignity we get in return. And I think that's the beauty of a, a place-based strategy, um, you know, so to speak is that we really focus on that defined neighborhood. And those relationships are established in deep ways for years and years and decades and decades with, for generations, which really allows us to move the needle and then speak to the outcomes, um, Because we're not spread all over the place trying to you know, spread our resources and we can't track whether we're having an impact or not. And we can definitely see the impact that we're having um, short term and you know, eventually long term.
0: That's actually a great segue to two questions I want to ask you. I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about connecting the short term to the long term. But before I do that, what has been the impact in terms of just people's health in your neighborhood with with COVID? I don't know if you're able to get a sense of how many people perhaps have tested positive, you know, where there have been health challenges. Talk to us a little bit about that, because at the end of the day, Purpose Built is focused on so many things that then should be, when put together, supportive of healthy communities and healthy families and healthy individuals. So what are you seeing the direct impact of the disease COVID on your uh, community members?
1: So when the pandemic hit and then, you know, thought about the Riverside Relief Fund, the first thing I thought about was cash assistance. The second thing I thought about was, wow, if, this gets a hold of the Riverside neighborhood, like the neighborhood is done, and, you know, everyone public housing, dense quarters, everyone's in contact with one another, it's a friendly environment where people are running in and out of each other's homes, uh, you know, Kingswick Community Center is right there. I was like, there's like, we got to get screening and testing into the neighborhood. Big part of the, you know, the health, out- the, the poor health outcomes are the barriers to health access. So you know, barrier to access. So, you know, transportation. Just historically, us as black people are are fearful of doctors, you know, because of like Tuskegee experiment and other historical contexts. Not having a primary care doctor that initially you needed a referral to get the COVID, you know, testing done. So uh, I called Christiana Care, which is our major healthcare system here. They've been a great partner of ours. They've contributed a million dollars. They've we, we have members on our board. They've really been a great partner and collaborator in all of this. And when I called um, the Christiana Care representative, she was like, I was just about to call you because I want to do the same thing. So within two weeks, we had testing sites set up at Kingswood twice a week, three hours a day, and we've been doing it since, um, since that time. And that was in April. Um, what we're seeing in terms of results, um, we've screened and tested over 200 people. We're seeing a 21% positive test rate, which is alarming. Our, our state is averaging less than 4%. So to see that, um, we know the effects that they, that could have on the community. We've had um, members from our senior center, one in particular who's passed away. And um, when that happens, again, I'm probably telling too much information, but you know how I am. Uh, we pay for the funeral expenses to a limited degree. But uh, because, you know, they're part of our family and, you know, we just want to step in and, uh, I, as I continue to say, just step in the gap. and. We know that this could potentially hit our community just as hard if not harder as any other community um, because of the vulnerabilities that have been put in place, you know, because of those barriers to, to you know, healthy uh, outcomes. So, again, stepping in the gap because we knew there was a need and the 21% positive test rate definitely indicates that need is still there. And those numbers continue to climb.
0: Yeah, that's very sobering. Uh... Very, very sobering. I'd be really interested, sort of in light of that and in light of things that you've been doing on the release side, I know that you and your board are having a lot of discussions about, yes, we've got to focus on that and we've got to keep our eye on the ball, that it's all connected to the transformation that you're trying to to bring. So as you think about the work you are going to be doing, let's just say over the next through the end of the year and then on into 2021, talk to us a little bit about how you see navigating that pathway
1: we were in the middle of a capital campaign to raise thirty seven million dollars when the pandemic hit, and we had raised almost I think four million dollars in the first couple of months of this year with a goal of ten million this year. We were in the governor's recommended budget this year for three million dollars and got blanked uh, because of the pandemic and the financial um, situation that our state finds itself in. We shifted from the capital campaign to relief efforts, and the interesting thing is By doing this relief work and not sitting on our hands and sitting idle and just waiting for this to kind of you know pass, stepping up as a leader in this space, starting to fund, engaging the community like we've never engaged them before, being able to share this with our donors, potential donors as well, has really allowed us to establish relationships, not just with the community in terms of the residents, but the community broader in terms of potential funders, partners, stakeholders. So it's actually um, allowed us to strengthen our visibility, our position in the marketplace, and we now have an even greater story to tell to to those funders. You know, in the past couple of weeks, we've gotten back into somewhat of the things that we were doing prior to the pandemic in terms of tours. We're doing VIP mask and glove tours of the warehouse. We're doing a lot more engagement terms of our lunch and learns are now they're virtual but we were doing lunch and learns every Monday in a physical format where we get like 30 people from all over the city county state and people like we have some people come from Atlanta to visit our lunch and learn we do it every Monday um, so we're now doing that again pick that up virtually so uh, I wouldn't say we were back in a full swing of things because we definitely don't have a lot of activities and programs going on I'm in mean, the physical variety but it really um, you know it it allowed us to, to take this to the next level. And a lot of things that we're doing now, we can incorporate as we migrate out of this whenever that happens. So, um, I believe that, you know, once the world and the economy stabilizes again, um, there might be a delay in us reaching our goal, but I, it, it might not be because I think that we could potentially accelerate fundraising we're doing because of the intentional focus on all of the things that we've been saying for the past couple of years and purpose folks have been saying for the last, you know, ten, if not longer, before it was officially purpose built communities, is that these holistic approaches are really addressing systemic structural racial issues that have been pervasive in our country for, for far too long. And now that people are becoming more educated and informed about it, they want to do something to help. And there's no better way to help than to support a purpose built community.
0: I'm curious in that sort of that pathway. We were on a call earlier in the w- in the week, actually yesterday, and Shirley Franklin talked about you had to work in the openings. You have to work into the openings. And as you all were talking, that's exactly what it sounds like. You have that mindset from a leadership perspective that you wish this was not so, but given that it is, you have to find the place where Reach Riverside can work into those openings to provide pathways for things that we didn't even know were possible right at the beginning of the year when we started 2020. I'm curious, how is it changing engagement with your board as well as your partners? Because the purpose-built effort, we all know, is not a singular effort. It's not just one organization. It is multiple organizations getting aligned to do what they do best. To come together for a full solution. So are you seeing, you know, sort of nuances and shifts in the way your board is looking at this work and the way that your community partners are looking at the work?
1: Oh, we're definitely seeing a shift. And I'd like to say we were, we're ahead of the curve, you know, no pun intended. But, you know, our mission at Reach Riverside is to eliminate the barriers of structural racism. And when I proposed that mission statement two years ago, it was met with resistance um, because it was like, well, why do we have to be so forward and blatant about and direct about the racism? Like people aren't going to understand that. I said, perfect. It evokes a conversation. It makes you ask the question. People want to know what are you talking about? And we were like a couple years ahead of that and not saying, you know, this is anything that's new to a lot of people, but not everyone is comfortable having these conversations. Um, And now we're forced have these conversations. If you aren't having these conversations, um, people are going to look at you like you've got three eyes. And you have to be, you don't have to be an expert because I don't think there are anyone that has all the answers. Um, But you should be able to have an informed conversation. Everyone should be willing to learn. But more importantly, everyone should be willing to listen. Because me as a Black man has a totally different perspective as Some of my board members and not only do they need to listen to me, but I need to listen to them as well. That's the only way we're really going to be able to come together as allies to try to eradicate, you know, what's going on. And it's structurally, it's systemically, it's the policies, it's the practices. Um, It's not necessarily, you know, me looking at you and calling you a slur word. It's how this country was structured to literally oppress somebody because of the way they look. And, you know, our boards, our partners are doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on the work that we're doing and their commitment to this work because people want to see things change. And again, I'll say it again I'll reiterate the way that purposeful communities approaches it with this holistic three pronged approach is the way that it needs to be done to affect change. And then you add, you know, the policies on top of that, which we can support and we can advocate. But at the end of the day, people want to see execution. And, you know, through this model and through what we're doing with our partners, um, we are executing, uh, you know, better, and make it a competition. But, yeah, we're executing not like many others um, because we're able to do it holistically, which takes our partners who might be doing it, you know, in one sector, or one area. But we call it our Thanksgiving approach where we're usually fighting over funds and collaborations and partnerships. And we tell everybody to come to the table. Just make the dish that you bring well. You know, Some people shouldn't be making the back the cheese and potato salad, but bring the thing that you do well. And at the end of the day, like my family, we'll have plenty of leftovers. And people have bought in, you know, internally and externally. And um, every day is a feast at Reach Riverside.
0: Okay, so now you've, uh, I was getting ready to ask you a question and- you ended that on a very positive note. I'm going to ask you, though, what what's your biggest challenge that you see coming out of this, and maybe to try to spin it a little bit more positive. What's the biggest opportunity that you have your eyes set on that might be embedded in a challenge?
1: So, the the biggest opportunity is to overcome the I'm going to say perceived lack of resources that is needed to deliver on our vision and when i say our the community's vision for riverside for example and this is why i say perceived lack of resources we're in a pandemic you know we didn't get the three million dollars we understand we understand there's budgetary constraints this year but i also know that tomorrow morning i am going to a bridge um ribbon cutting ceremony to honor one of my advisory board members, Senator Margaret Rose Henry, who has given tirelessly to the state um, in her service, an African-American woman who I adore, and they're dedicating a fifty million-dollar bridge that goes over the riverfront. And this riverfront has seen hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of development, and it is majority um, higher-income individuals—not um, a, a good, um, I say, representation of a lot of people of color down there. And I don't think that it's the highest and best use of our capital dollars to put fifty million dollars on a bridge. Now I know I might get in trouble for saying that, but I, you know me—if I say it here, I could say it to their face. Is that I'm not saying because I—I walk down the riverfront probably three or four times a week. I love it. I think it's beautiful. You know, it's, it's 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 beautifully laid out, and I think it does wonders for our city. And I love that I can take advantage of it. Um, but there are a lot of people in our city that don't go down there. They don't feel comfortable going down there. And I don't necessarily see how $50 million on a bridge, let's just say it this way. We are in a $37 million capital campaign. Our new Kingswood State of the Art Community Center, we anticipate costing $17 million, one third of that 50 million. I am fighting tooth and nail, doing a song and dance for every single millionaire that this state probably has and given tours and such when we spend $50 million on a bridge. And we have the most impoverished community in the city. And I have to fight. A black man has to fight to get money to come into this neighborhood. It just doesn't make sense to me. So that's why I say the perceived lack of resources, because when there's political will and we want to do things, we can do it. We can do it quite easily. Uh, And you're starting to see it to a certain degree. We're changing names of professional sports teams. Uh, You know, we're getting funding behind a lot of initiatives. People are getting ousted. We're banning, you know, some of the biggest Name brands. Like, there are certain things we can do, but the things that we're doing, and not to say that they're wrong, are we putting Band-Aids on solutions? Are we really healing those, those wounds? And what we're doing with Reach Riverside, what purpose those communities don't, we're healing the wounds. We're, we're making right those wrongs. And yeah, the the biggest challenge is the fact that, you know, every day I have to create an argument and, com- and a compelling argument. And we do a good job of it, of why we need resources to support a community where that community has been oppressed for far too long. And that just is backwards to me. People should be calling me, say, hey, here's money. Please go spend it. Do what you have to do. And we do have some of that going on, but not to the degree that we should have. When we have a $50 million bridge over a riverfront
0: when people ask me, how do I feel about this moment? How do I feel about what is happening in our country? What's happening in our purpose-built neighborhoods? What's happening to Black people in America? I say that this is a time where I'm heartbroken and hopeful. And uh, one of our network members on our call last week talked about it's brutal, but it's also beautiful. And I think, um, you know, all of us are sort of swinging from moments of hope and, you know, moments of despair. I'm curious, how do you think navigating this time and being such a strong advocate for your community and uh, all the things that we've talked about, how is that changing you as a leader and as a person?
1: If I thought before that I couldn't take time off, I definitely feel like now I can't take time off. And I know, I know, don't get on me. Like you have to take time for yourself and your own physical and mental health is important and you have to rest. But as I tell my staff, and I probably shouldn't be telling them them this either because this probably isn't the best in terms of HR, but I'm like, the community's problems don't stop at 5 p.m. And they don't start at 9 a.m. And they don't take the weekends off. So, you know, I tell them like, I'm not going to slow up. So if you're expecting me to slow down so you can catch up, I'm sorry. Just, I'm just not. I, I can't rest. I can't, it just doesn't fit right with me that you know, so many people are struggling. And the fact of the matter is, I caught some breaks in life. I had opportunities to take advantage of some resources. And quite frankly, I just got lucky because um, some of the dumb stuff I did as a teenager, had I been caught, my life would have been over and it would have been a completely different path. And so I'm no different. Than anyone else in the community. Definitely the same color, but again, I was, you know, very fortunate, very blessed, and I don't want to take for granted the blessings that I have as an individual. And I owe it to the rest of the community to pay it forward, so they can do the same thing. Um, we're not, you know, everyone isn't going to be a success story, and we're not going to change the neighborhood overnight. But every single Person that I affect and, and my colleagues and my partners affect, you know, that's a ripple effect and it gets spread the same way we spread COVID. You know, po- negative things get spread the same way positive things get spread. So, you know, if we can continue to pay that forward, that's a, an epidemic or a pandemic that I'd like to see, um, a positive one where everyone's becoming healthy and prosperous. And, you know, Kingswood is no longer a free community center. You know, the services you pay for, just like you do in all the affluent communities. I don't believe that, you know, us celebrating Kingswood's 75th year anniversary next year is a great thing. And you know, I think nonprofits should be in the business to go out of business or at least that model changes um, because the community should be sustained. And, you know, I don't want to be here to continue to serving the community. I want to be here to work with the community, sustain the community so they can then pay for the services at Kingswood if that's you know what it's going to be in the future. So that's my goal.
0: What haven't I asked you in this conversation?
1: Yeah, so I think um, and it's not about necessarily the entity, the organization, the warehouse, but it's more about it's goal to revolutionize teen engagement. And the one thing that I like to touch on is the youth in our community. And we have some real leaders, but I also want to talk about like how our youth really set the tone for all of the, the things that are going out of the conversation. Um, and it's similar to a couple of years ago with police gun, I mean, not police, Um, gun reform. And, you know, if you see these mass shootings and the youth marched on Washington, well, the youth that are being affected by, you know, these uh, racial injustices, throughout our, our country and society for all of these decades and hundreds of years, um, the youth that are being impacted the most are those of color. We don't necessarily have the resources to be going to D.C. So they took action in their local communities. And albeit we can disagree on how, what they did, at the end of the day, they got our attention. And the reason why I, I, I talk about the warehouse is because we're giving our youth a voice. We're working with them. Our tagline is for teens, by teens. We're listening to them. Our board chair is a 17-year-old rising senior in high school. Like we've been working with teens for 20 years. They designed our space with architects. their employers or they're being employed by us. They are evaluating programming, choosing which partners come into the building. Like we are giving them the ultimate power. We call it team led adult guidance. And I think by giving them platforms to speak to um, people empowered, and that 's what we 're doing. Our next step with the racial justice work is like having them talk to the police chiefs, having them talk to their elected officials, give their perspective, they want to be heard. Many people think they may be may be misguided or misinformed. they are not they are very passionate, and you 're starting to see it with like your you know your twenty year olds where they think a little bit differently, act a little bit differently than the previous generations um and our teenagers are the same way. They are very socially conscious and understand what it's going to take to move the needle. And we better start listening to them because in the next five to ten years, they're going to be our next workforce. They're going to be the people coming in that we're going to look to employ us or being, you know, be our boss. And uh, I think it would behoove us as a nation to start giving them the opportunity to contribute again to those solutions. And um, that's what community is about is solving problems together and solving problems for ourselves and not asking people. To do it for
0: us. I said that was my last question, but because you uh, <laughs> wanted to talk about teens, can I ask you one more? I'm curious um, in that context, what uh, what have they been talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and the the conversations we're having about policing and the role of the police? I think teens and young people are really having a strong point of view about that. What are you hearing?
1: What I'm hearing is that they don't have a positive outlook on the police because many have many of them have been and it only takes one, right? Like you can have nine great interactions with the police officer, one bad one, and it'll paint you for a long time. And I heard of an analogy, and this is not to make light of the situation, but it's like, well, you know there's good police officers. It's like, well, we don't say that about the airline industry. We're like, well you know, you know, America Airlines has like 99 really good pilots, but if that one pilot like, no, like everyone has to be great. And and we need to set up a system where every police officer is great. And that's the thing we're hearing the most is like about the police, also about education. Our youth actually, um, I think it was a few weeks ago, started, I believe it's Instagram or Twitter, might be Twitter, a Twitter page where every private school, Catholic uh, the teams were going on there and sharing their experiences, their race, the experience they've had with racism in their schools and outing everyone like that's taking the power back. So now there's investigations that pretty much every private school, These private schools are forced to do something to make it more diverse, to integrate these things into their curriculum, into their culture. Like, again, inventive, creative ways um, to really take back that power and say we're going to do something to change something. So um, those are just a couple of ex- examples, but I remember I was a teen and I wasn't necessarily thinking like that. I didn't know a lot that I know now, and I learned it at a late age, and I wish I knew more. And they're exposed to a lot more because of technology, because of everything that's happening in this country. Um, we need to start uh, implementing, making this a part of our our infrastructure where we get to learn the historical context, um, be proud of our heritage, and not see just because we've been oppressed that we're weak and that we're we're uneducated. I mean, we have a lot to offer. We've offered a lot to this country. We built this country and justice is getting back what we deserve for the the contributions that we've made to this country.
0: Well, that's a great note uh, to end on, because really a lot of the things that we've talked about today you're sort of investing that in people and investing in our youth so that next generation and future generations, like you said, just like with LJ, doesn't have to fight the same systemic issues that you are working with community to address. So that's a great way to to end our conversation. Logan, it has been a pleasure talking with you. It always is. I always learn something. um, And we just appreciate you taking the time.
1: Michelle, thank you for including me. It's been a, it's been literally my pleasure, my pleasure, uh, to be a part of, part of this uh, experience and uh, being able to share. I usually don't get to talk this much. Um, I usually don't like to talk this much, but you know, obviously these are topics that I'm extremely passionate about. So, anytime I get an opportunity to share some of the work that we're doing and why we do it, I think the why is the most important thing. So, thank you.